3: Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Around the Coin. Today's guest is Rand Hindi, the CEO of Zama. Zama Zama.ai is a startup building homomorphic encryption solutions for Web2 and Web3 applications. We talked about what that is specifically and why the whole internet is moving in that direction. The company has raised over $50 million. Uh, Rand's previous company, he was the CEO of Snips, an AI company which was acquired by Sonos. Uh, He's an investor in over 50 startups, ranging from blockchain to semiconductors to psychedelics. He holds a degree in computer science and a PhD in bioinformatics from UCL in London. We talked about encryption, what's happening today, what is going to happen in the future, and what Zama is doing to help accelerate that trajectory. Uh, We talked about the macro economy. Uh, Rand is from Paris, France. So we talked about the impact that blockchain is having, crypto is having on that part of the world, in Europe, in America, throughout the the Western world. We looked at the trajectory of the NFTs, DeFi going up, coming down, and made some predictions about what will happen in psychedelics of all things. Uh, We briefly touched on Rand's Uh, investment thesis and what he views uh, the lens through which he makes investment decisions on and uh, i deeply enjoyed this conversation rand is a super super smart guy well accomplished and building something super meaningful for the world so hope you enjoy learn something if you do please give us a thumbs up or share it and here is rand hindi All right, Rand. I'm excited to be chatting with you. Um, like I said a few minutes ago, I was reading some of your background and really impressed by the different projects that you've been involved in, companies you've invested in, and then business you're now running at Sama. Um, I- I'd love to kick it off with just talk, just covering the bases of encryption, where we are today with encryption, what the uh, challenges are in moving to a uh, a world where there's just you don't have to think about encryption, encryption at all. Um, yeah, go for uh, it. Hi, Mike. Um, so when you think about a history
1: of privacy and encryption, uh, it's actually a topic that's very, very old. I mean, you know, Caesar famously had a cipher that he was using for sending, you know, encrypted messages and throughout history. You had all kinds of different cryptography techniques, encryption techniques invented by the military mostly in order to securely communicate. For a very long time, however, the problem was, how can you actually communicate secretly and share the same kind of passphrase, right? You needed some kind of shared secret in order to be able to decrypt and encrypt the message. So for a very long time, the biggest problem with encryption was, how do I send you the passwords, pretty much? Uh, Fortunately, at some point in the 70s, people invented what's called public encryption, meaning that I can encrypt the message without having to share the private secret key with you because you actually have it on your side. And that completely revolutionized cryptography. It enabled people to communicate securely. It enabled having things like, you know, uh, the HTTPS thing in your browser, the secure communications on the internet. It enabled messaging apps like WhatsApp or Signal that encrypts the messages end to end. The problem, however, is that this was still only useful for transmitting data. Whenever you had to manipulate the data and do something useful with it, well, you know, it was encrypted. So by definition, it was completely random. And this is where homomorphic encryption comes in. It's a new type of encryption technique where you can actually manipulate the data while it's actually encrypted and produce a result after decryption, which would be the same as if you never had the encryption in the first place. Um, So think about it this way. Imagine I want to use, you know uh some kind of web service, uh, let's say something like Siri right now, I would need to send my voice to the company providing the service they would analyze it, send back the response. so the company offering the service has access to all of my data with something like homomorphic encryption, I would encrypt my data, my voice in this case, send it encrypted to the service provider who has no idea what I just sent and doesn't have the key to actually decrypt it, but it can still somehow manipulate it. They can run algorithms on it. They can do you know operations on it, produce a result which itself is still encrypted that they send back to you and I can decrypt. So from my perspective, nothing changes. I just sent something and received a response, but now the data is encrypted even during processing. Um, and so this is really the holy grail of cryptography, because when you think about it, It means that you no longer have to send data anywhere. Everything on the internet can be encrypted all the time, 24-7 in everything you're doing, which is why I firmly believe that in the future, people will not care about privacy, not because it's irrelevant, but because
3: it won't be a problem to care about anymore. Hmm. It'll almost be, you have this... um this uh, new protocol, I guess, acronym, HTTPZ. z mm-hmm. So this would be similar to how we moved from HTTP to S for secure. This will be just like the next way that everyone operates and people won't think about it. Uh, underneath the hood, when, when companies are receiving data from users that are encrypted and they want to make changes to that data or do something with it, it, you have a great example on the site where there's like an image, and you flip the image, and you know contort it in some ways, black and white, and then you get the response. It seems like a great example. It's also simpler. Simple. Is there is there areas where you, there's not a simple algorithmic modification to the to the data that that limits the ability uh, of of companies to make changes? Like if you wanted to, you know, update a part of your profile or something. Like, are, are there areas where it's just technically impossible to make a change? It used to be the case.
1: If it's It used to be that you were limited to additions and multiplication. Mm-hmm. So you could only do very simple things. Uh, fortunately, the technology has gone way beyond that point now. And we're able to do things like artificial intelligence, like, you know, smart contracts, uh, any kind of arbitrary, complicated computation on the encrypted data. Um, there are a few things, however, that you cannot do encrypted. And this is when a human needs to be involved in the loop, right? Because, you know, if a human has to, mm. well, look at the data and modify it, a human has to look at the data and modify it. So <laughs> it cannot be encrypted. But as long as mm-hmm. the data is processed by a machine, it can remain encrypted
3: at all times. Interesting. And are there other are cases where it's, Is it pretty much black and white? I mean, do you see this uh, occurring more like a switch where companies make some update behind the scenes and it's just end to end encrypted? Or is it is it like what's the technical debt that we're in, I guess, is what I'm I'm asking.
1: Well, we're trying to make it simple. Uh, It was very difficult to use this technology Mm. before because you needed a very strong knowledge of cryptography. And as a result, nobody was really understanding how to use it. This is something that we're figuring out at the moment, and we created very simplified developer tools so that developers of, you know, uh, cloud applications or blockchain smart contracts are able to use homomorphic encryption without changing anything to the way they build their applications. So from a developer's perspective, you can think of it as something that comes after you've built your application. You know, you just write your program, do whatever it's supposed to do. Then you have this special conversion function that will take that program and convert it into something that can run on encrypted data. And so that's it. That's the only change you have to make. You have to add this extra step at the end of your development process. But from the user's perspective, nothing changes. You know, they're just accessing a service. The only difference
3: is that they're no longer giving data away to the service provider. Yeah, and giving data away, specifically that is like, there's a point of decryption where companies typically decrypt the data. They modify it in some way and then re-encrypt it. And that, that area where there's, there's just plain yeah. text is where the majority of the hacks exactly. come from. Because when you think about it, if you're a hacker or you're a government
1: and you want to engage in mass surveillance, you aren't going to go and try to hack every single individual. What you're going to do instead is you're going to go and access the data from all of those users in whatever database they're centralized. So typically, you know, any popular a product will centralize data on millions or billions of people. This is the single point of failure. If a government wants to surveil a billion people, they'll go to a company that has data on a billion people rather than go to a billion individual people. So with homomorphic encryption, this becomes a moot point because the data that's hosted on the servers of those companies is encrypted. And there is no way, even for the company, Mm. even for a government, even for a hacker, even for a quantum computer, to actually break that type of encryption.
0: If you own crypto and leave it on the exchange where you bought it, like Coinbase, that is a mistake. We've heard the news lately. Exchanges closed, accounts frozen. We're learning the hard way that crypto on exchanges is not really in your control. So what can you do about it? Well, you can get a crypto wallet and control the crypto yourself. And that's why today's show is sponsored by Zen Go. These guys realize that Storing Bitcoin and storing crypto yourself can be difficult. It's risky to keep private keys. They realized this and said there's got to be a better way. So they created a crypto wallet that is fully recoverable. So say goodbye to lost Bitcoins. And the security of this wallet is incredible. It's a hacker's worst nightmare. They use a three-factor authentication, including 3D biometrics, so no one can access your wallet except for you. And ZenGo realizes that at different levels of the crypto journey, you have different needs, so they offer 27 support and have real people that are available to contact directly within the app. They have a bunch of different coins, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Tezos, and more, and they have all sorts of NFTs available as well. So now for the first time, you can keep your crypto safe with the same tools that the big guys have used for years. Download Zengo, that's Z-E-N-G-O, and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's $20 back for your first purchase of $200 or more. Use code ATC and check out Zengo. Uh,
3: Is there... Are there limitations? Like, uh, like w- one thing that comes to mind, I wanted to ask you about is uh, if a company has, you know, say ten thousand users, yeah. and they have some basic information about these people, they have their ages, they have where their their locations, they have uh, spending patterns, whatever it is. You know, I'm picturing like yeah. Google would have just a, a monstrous yeah. treasure trove. That data is useful because these companies effectively build a business model on top of that by showing relevant mm-hmm. advertising to these people. Is there when they would move to fully encrypted? Is there it does that model disintegrate by default, and then the users would have to opt in to giving data to the companies in order for those companies to have a profitable business they model. They not have to. It doesn't have to. to. Uh,
1: let's take the example of advertising. Okay, you can hate advertising as much as you mm-hmm. want. That's not the point of the discussion. The point is, can you still rely on advertising as a revenue model if the data is encrypted all the time? The answer is yes. And the way this would work is simple. The user would still upload their data encrypted to the server of the company. And that company would then do an encrypted advertising matching, right? So they would have a database of ads mm. and they would just, you know, blindly match those ads to the user. So they actually wouldn't know which ads they're serving to the end user because this would be encrypted as well, right? And whenever the user clicks on an ad, then they can get the attribution link to actually, you know, say that the user clicked here. So in practice, you could have a system where you had end to end uh, advertising uh with homomorphic
2: encryption.
3: So uh, let me break it down an example. So if, uh you went on Facebook as an advertiser and you said I want to target people 25 to 29 that are interested in skateboarding in yeah you know, Texas. How what how would, how would Facebook without having access to the the plain text yeah. data how would they reverse
1: engineer Yeah, I know that that sounds like black magic, but there's a whole point, right? So what happens is <laughs> so Facebook would make the query, right? that query would be matched against an encrypted database of profiles. And so what they would get out of this query is a list of encrypted profiles. So they they wouldn't know who was selected as part of this query. They would just basically get a, a bunch of random numbers. But those random numbers represent the result of that encrypted query. And then they could use that with machine learning, whatever, to select the ads they want to show. But they also wouldn't know which ads they're selecting because they don't know who they're actually getting the results from. So the ad itself would be encrypted. They would send that back to the user. The user locally on their device would decrypt the ads that they're receiving and display them, right? So from Facebook's perspective, mm. the, cre- the database is encrypted. The query is encrypted. The selection of the advertising is encrypted. The ads they're sending back to the user is encrypted. So they have no idea what it just sent back to the user but the user can display it on his end.
3: Interesting. Do you see a tremendous amount of either political or social pressure being necessary to make large companies that build their businesses on top of advertising to, to adopt this, even if they technically could? Or is this somehow is this within their interest to do so? I believe it's within their interest because when you think about it, when you're holding
1: plain text data, what you're really doing is holding a very dangerous asset. Uh, You've got everybody trying to hack you. You've got people internally leaking the data. You've got governments coming and asking access to the data. You really don't want the data. And those companies don't sell this data. Those companies use this data to sell advertising. So if they can keep on selling advertising without actually having the data, there's actually a net benefit in terms of data security, compliance, risk perspective. So there is no downside. The only companies that want you'd be able to use this kind of technologies are companies that sell the actual data. So if a company has to sell the data, then obviously they don't want the data to be encrypted, right? Uh, but I would argue that selling data is not acceptable anyway. So, you know, too bad if data secure.
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah. And you couldn't, even even in theory, you couldn't sell encrypted data or does that not make sense? Well, I guess you could, right? Yeah, like, I guess you could. I guess you could. Uh, but, yeah. you know, I mean, if you're
1: trying to sell some marketing database to a human who's going to call people on the phone, the data kind of has to be non-encrypted, right? Yeah. Unless, I mean,
3: unless... it's Uh, AI
1: call, right. In which case, you could actually do, like, automated AI speech
3: generation
1: from encrypted data, but then, you know, this is too (laughs) (laughs) far-fetched.
3: Yeah, 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 yeah. And there's not, there's not, like, a reverse engineering that you could do if you had metadata on these people. Like, if you knew... uh, yeah, I guess, well, I guess that's the whole point of encryption, but the, so for Facebook blocking someone who is like, say, 13 years old or younger or outside a country that they can't operate in, would that would be detected, even if they didn't have the raw data, like how would they be able to ma- make a, a business logic decision that's right. like that?
1: So, so they could make the business logic decision, they just wouldn't know the results of the decision. Right, so they could still they could still okay because that would be program exactly they could still geofence the contents. Mm. It's just the content would be encrypted. So by geofencing, let's say a post, they are implicitly encrypting the post itself, and so
3: the user would just get it or not get it. But Facebook would not know the user got it or not. It's interesting. It kind of flips the whole game. Like in in many ways, you know, you're so from practically speaking, from say like a marketing or even product engineering perspective in a company. You, don't, you can't just say like a you know, product person couldn't say to uh, like a, a DevOps engineer or something, hey, give me data on, you know, what percentage of our users are uh, over 65 or like, could they run these yeah. kind of queries? Sure. So this is where things get
1: a little yeah. bit, you know, <clears throat> um, it turns out that you can design mm-hmm. your cryptography. Homomorphic encryption can be designed in a way that if you combine it in a certain way, the result is visible, right? So the individual data is not visible, but the result of aggregating a ton of data would be visible, right? And so you could do analytics. You could do, you know, statistics on a large sample of users and get the result of that. So you could say how many users are above 30 and get a response, which is like 25, even though you wouldn't know anything about the individual users. Uh, there's even a whole field of cryptography dedicated to that called differential privacy. Uh, I think Apple does that a lot in some of their stuff, uh, like, you know, when they analyze the emojis and the text messages decisions and things
3: like that. Um, it's
1: amazing. It's wild what cryptography can do today.
3: Yeah. 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 I- I'm trying to put this in, in a sense of like, where's, what's the trajectory that we're on, um, when you make sense of this from like a, a large arc of history, if you you know look at like pre BC uh, encryption, where they're just having some code, right? Even in like World War One, World yeah. War Two, there's like they use the uh, I think America used the Native Americans to encrypt messages famously, and that was you know impossible for the you know the other people to to decipher. Do you see this as being a constant technological march towards? this end-to-end encryption as the end zone and once we're here it's like game over or do you kind of see this as part of the evolutionary process of encrypting all the way to like like what's the next check checkpoint we hit technically is it quantum where that kind of throws everything up and so
1: fortunately uh, you know in chaos the quantum computers cannot break homomorphic encryption and some of those new cryptography techniques uh just because they can't do it, right? So, so it's post-quantum safe by construction. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's a more broader question of how much privacy do people want? I would argue that people want mm. as much privacy as they can get, and then they can decide who to selectively give access to the data. And encryption is a way to guarantee that, because if only you have the key to decrypt the data, only you can decide who can see the data, even though you're letting other people provide services on top of your data. And this is kind of where things are really different, right? Like cryptography and homomorphic encryption doesn't prevent you from using services. It just enables you to do it without revealing the data if you don't want to. But, you know, if you're going to go to a hotel Mm -hmm. and you have to check in and there's a human in front of you, you still have to give them the data, right? They have to check your ID physically and make sure that it's you, right? So, So there are moments where you want to give people access to your data but you don't want that to be the default. And the reason why it's been the default is because people needed that to run the services. But if you no longer need this data to run the service, then you can switch the
3: default from a public to a private setting. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine most people, oh, you were going add uh, it.
0: Yeah, I was going to gonna
1: say, this is actually, I think what epitomizes this the most is blockchain, right? Uh, On a gap chain, when you look at a smart contract and when you look at like, you know, something like Ethereum and everything else, Everything on the blockchain is public. And this is a huge problem, right? It's, it's, you know, it's, uh, you can get front run uh, and have all MEV kind of issues, you know. Uh, People know how rich you are, right? It's very easy to target you. There is surveillance 24-7. Like, it's very, very problematic, you know, putting aside the fact that a whole bunch of applications don't exist because everything is public. You know, for example, you would never have a geolocated smart contract because, who the hell would want to put their location with a transaction? That's like asking people to put a gun to your head and steal your crypto, yeah. right? So yeah. there's a whole bunch all yeah, exactly. things do in blockchain because things are public. But when you think about it, the reason why things are public isn't because of some kind of idealistic transparency vision. It's actually because you need multiple different people to agree on what has been done. You need consensus. And to reach consensus, they need to be able to redo the same thing, which means they have to share the data, which means in that case, the data is public. But with homomorphic encryption, you could actually have encrypted smart contracts where the data the smart contracts are manipulating is encrypted. So you could still have this decentralized network where people agree on the result of the computation. But instead of agreeing on the result of a plain text computation, they're agreeing on the result of an encrypted computation. And so that means that you can have a public decentralized network on top of which you can build private applications that nobody can see the content aside from the user making the transaction. And that's huge, right? Because now you can build mm. anything on a blockchain. You know, you can put your identity documents on the blockchain. Uh, you can put your location data on the blockchain. Uh, you can keep your assets private uh, on-chain. Uh, you can do all of these things, which was not possible
0: before.
3: And is this something that would need to be designed from the ground up in a layer one chain? Like I'm picturing Monero or Zcash come to mind as as chains that seem to go down this path. Is is this something that could be retrofitted to like Bitcoin, Ethereum and others? Yes, or of, of
1: course. You, does it need to be foundational? Kind of, well, it's, it's found they, it has to be foundational in the sense that you have to modify the consensus mm-hmm. protocol to be able to deal with this encrypted state. Uh, but there is no reason why Ethereum wouldn't be able to do it. I mean, likewise, you know, there is a reason why Bitcoin wouldn't be able to do it, but, you know, but Bitcoin doesn't want to change anything, right? So I think, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's not even a discussion. Uh, But I I hope, I really hope that eventually all layer ones will integrate homomorphic encryption as a way to offer privacy on chain.
3: I could see this being the kind of thing that would cause a massive fork where you almost have these like in, you know in the arc of history you have times where there's consolidation of power it could uh, either be politically or uh, socially re- religiously and then it kind of forks off you have like core you have almost an erosion of values like B- i could see bitcoin 10 years from now or even, maybe even sooner or later than that saying we don't want to change anything we're the Puritan. Yeah. we're the puritan mentality and then then it's like well you know then there's kind of these these uh collective benefits that people are are pushing for and then these benefits like encryption maybe there's like a, a, something related to speed or cost of transactions or layer twos or something and they all get together and eventually there's enough momentum to say we're at roughly like 50 50 they fork off and now now we have a world where there's like two large dominant reserve but, but
1: why why forking though because it's an optional thing you can still run things
3: publicly you, you just get to choose between doing things privately or publicly I would imagine that there's, there's, like you said, there's kind of just this pseudo religious uh, or almost, uh, does, there's this, well, there's this massive tr- electricity to change the direction. Right? Right? That's only true of Bitcoin. That's all true. Right. You know, why? Because yes, that's true.
1: when you look at other chains, right, like, like Ethereum and all these guys, um, they're developers. Developers care about people building applications, right? And the whole mindset and the whole kind of vision of Ethereum isn't to be a currency, Isn't it isn't to replace central banks, is to provide a shared resource where people can prove ownership of assets. This is very different. It's very, very, very different, right? Like, I think that what Ethereum wants and what all of those smart contract platforms want is maximal usage and uh, utility for the network. They don't necessarily want to stick to the original cryptocurrency vision that Bitcoin is yeah. sticking to. So I think like Bitcoin is a very unique ecosystem in the sense that, you know, they have this, this vision of like the global financial system collapsing and being replaced by Bitcoin. Ethereum doesn't care about that. They just want everything to run in Ethereum.
3: Yeah. And I think you can maintain both of these mentalities at the same time. I think you can you can see the, the global financial system, uh, I don't know about collapsing, eroding, certainly maybe moving towards. Uh, more decentralized finance. And then Bitcoin is like blocks in or slots in for gold. Sure. Ethereum slots yeah. in for all, all Italian. Yes.
1: Yes. So, um, so you it, know, if, if Bitcoin is, is gold and Ethereum is like AWS, right? Or something like that. Right. Right. Then most things are going to be built in AWS, right? Not on top of gold, right? You, can, right? you can build jewelry, right? Of course. You can still do that with gold. Uh, but that's like very niche type of products i mean niche you know, yeah. the point is very limited
3: yeah i i haven't heard many people refer to themselves as a ethereum maximalist uh which is something i saw you wrote is that still your stance on it is it because of the the central properties of ethereum being programmable whereas bitcoin or maybe others aren't
1: yeah definitely and uh, and i think you know i mean there's a lot of very good technologies out there you know competing l1s and everything my conviction is that people will go where developers go because developers build applications and those applications attract people to the network. And there is no ecosystem that's more active than Ethereum in terms of developer activity. So my my belief in life is developers decide what gets adopted, not companies, not consumers, not governments, developers. If developers don't want it, it's not going to happen. If developers want it, people will follow. And right now, developers want Ethereum.
3: Would you also say that it's a cyclical process, that the only reason developers like want it is because people are willing to use it? So there's like, developers will chase the technology that's the bestest, fastest, easier to build on because that's ultimately what gets people to like, yeah, I think, come I think, and I think, use the app in yeah, the first place. Could, you could argue that. Uh, I think we're past that point, though. I think this would have been true four years
1: ago in the last you know, cycle. I think this cycle, Ethereum has Is just too big, right? And so the momentum it has and catching up to Ethereum would be extremely difficult. I mean, you would would need a massive breakdown of the network itself for people to lose faith and move to something else. Uh, But so far, it hasn't happened, right? If anything, actually, many Hmm. of the other contenders for L1s have broken down, have been unreliable. Ethereum is the only network that has never gone down. You know, there are people who are hacking it. There's a lot of bad things and quirks and whatever, right? And, and we'll see what happens with the merge. But at the end of the day, it works. And that's the most important thing. Yeah.
3: And how, how did you, after you sold your last company, I saw that you, you both started Zama and then you started becoming more uh-huh. active in investing across not only crypto, but you mentioned psychedelics, bioinformatics. I might be forgetting something there, but th- th- that seemed to be the general uh-huh. themes uh how How did you develop the thesis, say specifically within crypto first uh, it, people you know projects that that generally make sense i mean did you have a, a thesis that was uh unusual or atypical in how you'd invest
1: um so in general, I like to invest in companies that other events, that other investors don't understand, so you know I invest very mm. early stage in super deep tech very matte heavy Science heavy, engineering heavy type of projects, you know, semiconductors, quantum computing, blockchain infrastructure, cryptography, machine learning. Uh, that's really my sweet spot. I know nothing about marketplaces and consumers, right? Uh, I don't know what's going to be the next big app or next big NFT project, but I know what people need to build those things. And this is really where I'm focusing on. Crypto specifically have been in it since 2013, actually. Uh, a friend of mine who was a very early Bitcoin uh, adopter. Uh, basically reimbursed me for lunch with a Bitcoin at the time, right? Uh, And, you know, so that's when I created my wallet and he sent me a Bitcoin. It was like, great, you know, I have it. And then I started buying more and more, lost everything at some point because I thought, you know, I knew what I was doing, but I didn't. Uh, And that's when I decided to really focus on, you know, um, Ethereum as an ecosystem and really focusing not on trading or investing and speculating on crypto, but really on investing in crypto projects. Uh, So I've been pretty early in quite a few DeFi projects. Uh, I'm currently really looking into, you know, obviously there are two solutions, but also into all of like the infrastructure piece around blockchain. Um, So I've seen three cycles, right? I've seen the 2013 cycle. I've seen the 2017-18 cycle. I've seen, you know, the 2020-2021 cycle. Um, And it's kind of always the same thing. Right. Uh, You know, people get overexcited, everything blows up and then it crashes down and then people go back to build and then people get excited about something new that was built. And I'm convinced, for example, the next cycle will be driven by decentralized identity. Uh, People will start realizing the crypto wallet is their identity and they will start signing and authenticating themselves with their crypto wallets and everything. And that's going to drive massive adoption of crypto beyond the currency use case, literally just as a proof of identity and ownership of stuff. Um, and, you know, and, and that will probably lead to another, you know, bear cycle. And then that's just how things work, right? Uh, um, it, it's, it's,
3: uh, but, but it's happening, right? It's getting bigger and bigger. And that's the most important thing. So if NFTs drove the most recent cycle, and then maybe, maybe you could also combine in there like DeFi. And then prior yeah, to that, I think it, we had a it's double double cycle, crypto generally.
1: Yeah. Del- yeah. We-
3: yeah. Maybe it was that violent because of it. Yeah, we,
1: we had this kind of weird double cycle thing. You know, when you actually look at what happened, we had the DeFi summer that pumped everything. It actually crashed like 60%, right, after that. And then right after that, you got the NFT summer that started, and then that brought everything up. So actually, we had two cycles condensed into two years, which is a very unique mm. uh, thing, right? Um, so, so, yes,
3: I, I think, you know, we see those things happening faster and faster. Mm. And in the case of DeFi, in the case of NFTs, it's easy for me to see how millions of people get in and they're able to transact and and inflate, like have something to inflate in the first place. In the case of identity, it's less obvious to me because it's not intuitively a transactional asset. How do you see the cycle being driven by uh, uh, decentralized or crypto identities, crypto identities? So, I mean, think about it. Uh,
1: the thing that people do the most online is login, right? They mm-hmm. log into a service, they fill some data, the service offers some kind of stuff, and then they move on. This is transactional because what you're doing is you're authenticating yourself, you know, a signature, basically. So replace a password with your crypto signature, you're doing the same thing, and then you're providing data, and that's a transaction. You're sending data to a service in exchange for that service. That's a transaction, right? So why wouldn't that be part of your, you know, identity wallet? You know, why would your passport and personal data be stored on a server and not in your wallet and just accessible to whoever needs to use it? Uh, and we've had people try to do that before, right? You know, you remember this company called Gravatar that was kind of like, you know, your centralized, mm. you know, social profile. People tried to do it, but they never had the technology to do it. And I believe the technology to do that is your wallet and is uh, storing your assets on a blockchain so that it can be reused
3: anywhere. And would that look something like what Apple Pay does where there's a new, there's a new interface to making transactions or is there some, I, I, I'm, I'm getting at whether there's an underlying asset that people would purchase and then that price would get overinflated. And then we'd go into that cyclical cycle again. I
1: don't, th- I don't think that there would be an asset per se. Right. I think people will store, let's say, their passports, uh, their location data on chain or whatever they want to store. Right. And then people will build services on top of that, accessing this data. And those services will be tokenized, most likely. So I think, you know, the the identity is going to drive people to blockchain, but it might not be what's valuable. Right. What's valuable is the services you can start building. And again, this is where homomorphic encryption comes in, because if you're going to be storing your private data on chain, you want to keep it private and selectively decide who can see it, which means you want to keep it encrypted on chain and let people use it encrypted
3: and just reveal the result whenever you want to. Yeah. It's almost like uh, greasing the wheels, so to speak. You're, you're just making it easier for the next wave to happen, whatever that exactly. next wave is fu- fundamentally investing in. Yeah. Uh, how do you make sense? You're in, I know you're traveling now, but you grew up in, live in, in France, mm-hmm. uh, and I know you. A lot of time investing in or talking to founders in other places throughout Europe, in the U.S. as well. How do you make sense of the the um, the big picture landscape change on uh, this shift from traditional finance to to this crypto world? But but not even restrained within finance. It's like it seems to be we have a few major trends happening at the same time, like AI. I, I spent the whole weekend playing with Mid Journey and that thing just pff, like, yeah. blew my mind. Yeah. And it's just, well, you could easily see how this goes from a Discord channel that you type in a few words and gives you a rendered image to I type in words, it gives me a video. And then I put on VR and I just articulate and describe what I want. And now all of Hollywood, all of movie production is now superseded by any individual who uh-huh. wants to spend enough time articulating a story that's interesting. So that's that's like, that, that alone is civ- like civilizationally changing. And then you have- like we're moving seemingly from centralized power to decentralized, at least in the Western hemisphere. Mm -hmm. And then like India sharply rising, China sharply rising in economies. Uh, Do you, yeah, do you have any macro thesis on the general trajectory of these things and how they settle out? Well, I I think my general thesis
1: is, really, you know, transhumanist kind of agenda, right? Typical singularity type of agenda, right? It's, what we're really doing here is we're making everything digital. And by making everything digital, we're making it easier and easier for people to live in a digital space and to start creating this intertwined, intertwining between biology and technology. And it's not just AI, it's not just crypto, right? It's also, you know, new medical technology. It's it's everything, it's technology in general. Uh, People think about transhumanism as a new idea, but in fact, transhumanism has always existed. The first time a human took a stick to get a fruit in a tree, they extended the length Mm -hmm. of their arm. This is transhuman, right? They went beyond biology itself by using technology, in that case, a stick. So this is just a continuation of what humans have always done, which is to not self-limits to what biology gave them as natural capabilities, but to go beyond that by inventing technology. And the more you want to integrate this technology, the more you need this technology to be super fluid and super simple and super seamless. And this is really what we're seeing right now. So, yeah, sure, your example is great. You know, you're going to put a headset to describe Mm -hmm. what you want. And, you know, that's probably going to be the reality for a lot of people, right? And maybe at some point it's going to be like the Matrix. You won't even know you're in a simulation anymore. Uh, Or maybe we're going to be cyborgs and, you know, everything in your body will be eventually replaced because you're going to live 500 years. And, you know, like the probability your arms going to be chopped off at some point is very high. So you have to replace it. I don't know exactly where things are going. All I know is that we're definitely seeing the beginning of a fuzzy difference between physical reality and digital reality. And uh, and that's just going to get more and more, uh,
3: not less. Mm. And what areas, you mentioned a few deep tech areas you're focused on, which areas do you feel like people have the least appreciation for the impacts that this technological development will uh, impact the world in like the next three to five uh-huh. years? Um, hmm. I
1: don't think that people realize what's happening in medicine right now. Um COVID, amongst many other things, has accelerated the demand for better healthcare for people. And I don't mean like healthcare, like, you know, you're going to the hospital. I mean, people actually wanting to live longer, healthier, better. Uh, I cannot tell you how many of my friends who didn't used to care about, you know, these things are now freaks about, you know, tracking their data and understanding supplements and eating well and sleeping well and doing all kinds of weird injections and things like that. This is becoming mainstream. And I don't think people realize what that means. It's, it's the first time that people actually care about being healthy. And if we've been able to live to a hundred years old mm-hmm. with our current lifestyle, imagine how long we can live by actually taking care of ourselves. So I think this is gonna be huge. Um, and I, I don't think people see that coming right? I think in 20 years, we're going to realize that we can live to 150, no problem. And people will be like, oh, wow, we never we never saw that coming. They probably wouldn't even think about that. I don't think that there is any moment where, where where people will tell you, hey, you're going to live to 150. I think you're just going to live to 150 and then be like, huh, interesting.
3: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have uh, mixed reactions there. I, I feel like there, there, there tends to be uh, almost like a, a a separation among people where there's a, a group of people who are interested in optimizing their health. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, those people, you generally can look at them, they're in great shape already. And, you know, they're, they're focused on their, their macros or, you know, whatever fasting or cold plunge experiment they're into. And then there's people who are r- like roughly in the United States, Mexico, the other countries as well. There's like 30 plus percent of mm-hmm. the population who's obese or morbidly obese. And the vast majority of healthcare money goes to people who have issues that are somehow downstream from being obese. It could be diabetes, it could be cardiac issues or mm-hmm. you know, osteoporosis, yeah. any of those. And it's like, th- that's low hanging fruit from a civilizational yeah. health perspective. <laughs> it's, you know, certainly related to diet and exercise, like basics. You certainly have like technology in the end state, but just you know, a bit of anecdotal. My wife is an orthopedic surgeon. Mm-hmm. She practiced down in, in LA and uh and, and she would take care of the patients down in like south central l a which were vast majority just low income yeah uh and and just like physically obese and and there's just tremendous amount of money spent on those people, and just like not a great not not a uh-huh. great touch point for technology to me it doesn't uh-huh. seem like it's like a tech problem per se, but it's it's such it's such a screaming problem. Yeah. Like they're not concerned with optimizing lifespan. They're just like thinking about the next week, the next paycheck, the of next course, deal, course, whatever it of is. Of course,
1: right now it's a luxury.
3: Right now it's a mm. luxury.
1: In twenty years, thirty years, forty years, when it's affordable, when it's when it has trickled down into everything, when we replace processed food by great food all the time everywhere, you won't even have to make an effort. Keep in mind, like you know, the diabetes and obesity pandemic started in the 70s. So there was a starting point and the starting point was the introduction of processed food, pretty much, right? So, you know, if you change the baseline, if you change the default, you're changing the the end result for everyone, right? But in order to do that, you have, thing, you have you need things to be cheap and to work, right? And I think we're going to get to that point. Mm. So in the beginning, sure, you and I probably, you know, we'll be the first people to live to 150. But in 100 years, I think everybody will be able to.
3: And do you have a sense for whether the the breakthrough on food production to be more either sustainably made or healthy, widely distributed, cheaper? Is this a technology breakthrough, or is this more of a regulatory operational breakthrough that needs to happen? I think it's a, like think do you view it, it as I like both. We have underground plants and so on. I think or it's both, right? And I, I'm not an expert in you know uh,
1: public policy and things like that, right? But it's definitely both because when you think about food. If you're able to engineer food the way you want, you can engineer it to be as good as you want or even better. Right. So wh- why, why should people take supplements if the food is already amazing and enriched with everything? Right. So I'm not talking about GMOs or everything, but I'm talking, you know, about all those new lab foods people are creating. Uh, Hey, if you can eat bacon, that's not bacon and that tastes like bacon. That's a win. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, I'm I'm always I'm always I always feel like there's one pattern that seems to reproduce itself over time, which is the the like, hey, this is the solution. And then it is it is the solution, but it introduces a whole new layer of problems like the processed food problem is the solution to starvation. Yes. uh, You know, in in the last generation, the last century. And so, uh, yeah,
1: I agree. But the important thing is that on average, the population gets better. Right. So, you know, you will have new problems introduced with every new solution. I agree with you 100%. But on average, people will still be doing better. And this is really what matters, right? What matters is that the average goes up, is that people are happier, healthier, you know, richer, uh, more, you know, fulfilled on average. You know, you want that curve to keep going Mm -hmm. up. Uh, And thankfully, there will be problems to solve. Otherwise, we'll get very bored.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Uh, it, it's almost like you want to balance the problems and entertainment. Yeah. You want to, you want to, I want to travel to stars. I want to watch amazing movies, play amazing games, have great experiences, and also have something that's like threatening me. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a great, um, there's a great kind of study on this where they took mice and they put them in a, in a tube and they would measure how fast they go from one side of the tube to the other. Mm-hmm. And they would put mice and they'd measure them baseline. And then they would starve the mice for a few days or weeks. And they'd, they'd measure how fast the mouse wants to go to the cheese. They put cheese at the end and that mouse of course goes faster. And then they put cat urine behind the mouse. And they found that when the, when the mouse was starved and there was cat urine behind the mouse, that's when they would run the fastest. So you're like, you're motivated to get to the cheese yeah. and you're also scared from getting <laughs> behind it, which makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah. 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 Stay hungry, stay foolish, right? Uh how do you... Yeah, stay scared, stay stay hungry. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> that's the moral. <laughs> Slightly scared, which which I feel like climate change is a nice kind of impeding yeah. existential threat that we're all yeah. uh layering on. Um how do you make sense of the psychedelic um Situation we're in, which is that you know in the u s at least speaking here, it was pretty much banned yeah. after a massive spike in popularity in the sixties yeah. and fifty years later, sixty years later, we're just starting to like r- excavate the yeah. the opportunity a lot of academic research is happening uh, I'm in Oregon, and there's a lot of legalization that's happening slowly but surely do you do you reconcile this with like a particular direction of society is this yeah, I hear How I, you make I, sense? And I, yeah, I, yeah. I, th- I think mental health. There's a bunch of factors, right? But
1: mental health is a is a growing problem, and we're actually starting to acknowledge it more often, right? So it's not that it's not just that more people are unhappy and have problems; is that we also have more people talking about it, and so when you combine that, it creates this massive problem slash opportunity to you know help them. Uh, I think there was a statistic I saw, which was really shocking. Um, During COVID, 25%, so a quarter of people under 25, thought about suicides in in the previous six months. That's huge, man. That's huge. It didn't mean they tried it, but they thought about it. A quarter of the young people thought about suicide in the past six months. I mean, what's going on, right? And I think, you know, psychedelics Mm -hmm. is interesting because it's actually a very good example of a technology you know, can you feel great and be great in your life? Yeah, sure, you know, can you meditate for ten years and reach you know this amazing yeah, sure, we can do those things the painful way, but if you have a shortcut, if you have technology to go beyond the natural biological ability to fix your mind, why not use it? Psychedelics is effectively a technology for your mind the same way that a stick is a technology for getting fruits in a tree um and and I think, you know, we're starting to discover that and, uh, and that's going to open up a whole new f- space of understanding the brain, understanding how things work. And I think we're going to be very disappointed once we figure it out, you know, that it's going to be much simpler than what we think. Um, but I think that's going to open up the door to that. I, I think, you know, we got now to a point where it's no longer acceptable to feel miserable. What do you mean by it's going to be more simpler than what we think? I think, you know, we have this fantasy about the human brain as like a super complex machine that is unfathomable and that, you know, we'll never be able to crack through. I just think we had the wrong tools to actually understand it. Uh, and when you combine, you know, uh, mother imagery, right, uh, new mother MRIs, where you have more fine grains, understanding of the brain, you know, uh, brain implants, psychedelics. These are things which help you understand how the brain works. Uh, I think psychedelics in particular is interesting because it's a way to modulate how the brain actually works. Uh, we think about psychedelics like psilocybin and you know, LSD and whatever, which are kind of like, you know, you're like trolling a whole bunch of stuff, hitting every receptor and then see what happens. But precision psychedelics, which is really the next trend in psychedelics, enable you to target very specific receptor combination and turn on or off specific parts of your brain and specific emotions and specific attributes so you can literally be like okay i want to turn off uh happiness and see what that does to the brain right uh, see how people react so like you have this new era of experimental you know psychoanalysis experimental you know neurology that was really hard to to get before uh and i think that's amazing mm-hmm. right like you, you can think of it this way um psychedelics is to the mind what CRISPR is to genetics. It's a tool to manipulate it in a very precise and fine-grained
3: manner. I I agree with you. I think the mind has another layer uh, probably far stretching the analogy of CRISPR to the body in that the the experience you have of the world around you is the thing that's being manipulated Mm -hmm. unlike CRISPR, which is you're kind of looking at your finger or your arm or or some part of you that is being manipulated and even though it's 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 attached to you it's not the the functioning Mm -hmm. uh machine behind the the generation of the experience and even then is it is it true to say scientifically that consciousness is created in the brain i don't i don't know it certainly seems like there's a lot of activity happening yeah yeah neither do i Uh, i think this is one of the
1: areas where we're going to be very disappointed Uh, I think we're not going to find much. We're just going to discover that humans are very, Mm. very good machines, which is fine. Very good machines. Very good machines. We're amazing machines, right? And and I think I'm I'm honestly sincerely convinced that we got to the end of what our machines can do, and now we have to, you know, uh, get beyond it. Very, very basic transhumanist, you know, vision. Uh, I think it's been out there for for centuries. Uh, nothing new here. I, I just think that we're
3: getting to that point.
1: Mm.
3: And, and do you see this as being what? What is the new thing? Like at, at a certain point, will what? Um, what will the? Are you most subscribed to the singularity proposition, where there's a supercomputer AI that kind of just? It, outpaces computation?
1: Not really. I I think I I would be more like in the generalist, transhumanist kind of philosophy that, uh, you know, you want to transcend biology using technology. I don't necessarily think that AI is going to be what's going to take over. Uh, I think actually that, you know, genetic engineering is going to be huge, not just for the human, but also for the environment. Uh, You know, so geoengineering, uh, plant engineering, food engineering, all of these things are manipulating biology. Right. At the end of the day, but you're using technology to do that. So it's not that we're going to live in an AI simulated world. It's just that nothing that we're going to do or live or eat or whatever will be natural, as in like unaltered. Um, And you know, people hate that idea, right? The idea that everything will be manipulated. But I think, you know, that's where we're going. Uh, You know, it's, yeah, more and more precise engineering of every single bit of thing out there. Uh, And it doesn't mean the experience is not going to feel authentic and real, right? Uh, Because most people won't even know it's happening. You know, if you can manipulate the climate and it's sunny outside, you're still going to feel great because it's sunny outside. It's not going to feel fake. It's just going to be done on purpose, right?
3: Mm. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, How much? How much concern? uh, Well, let me ask you this question: Do you feel that the the world maybe? France in particular, U.S. in particular, you know, you could pick Europe and America as, as case studies here. Are we properly calibrating our response to climate change or are, do you feel that we're leaning too hard into regulatory caution uh-huh. or, or not enough or, or are we pointing in the wrong direction? I, I, so, I don't yeah. know.
1: Unfortunately, I, I haven't looked enough into climate change. Uh, it's one of the things I have on my uh, agenda is to actually dig deeper. Specifically, I'm interested in geoengineering, actually. Uh I'm less so interested in politics around it. I'm really interested in, you know, can we use technology to solve that problem, right? If it's too late to go back, what can we do to make it livable, right? Um, one thing for sure, though, it feels like it's coming faster than we had anticipated, and that's very scary. Mm. That's very scary. I, yeah. I, th- I think this summer was the first time that I freaked out being like, Something's really wrong. Something's really, really wrong right now. What made you feel that way? Just too hot, right? Like, you know, going, oh, okay. going in Portugal in the water and the water was as warm as the Mediterranean Sea. Like, what's going on? Yeah. Right. When you go yeah. to the Atlantic, you're supposed to be wearing like, you know, a, like a, like a bodysuit to go in the water. It's supposed to be cold and now it's warm. You know, uh, I went to south of France, I went into the water, it felt like a hot bath, right? Like it was 42 degrees Celsius in Paris for a week straight. This makes no sense. Wow. Right? It makes no sense. Wow. Uh, and so I think, you know, like we were told that these things were going to happen, but I think that the frequency at which it has been happening this year is way above expectation. Uh, and that's actually really, but it wasn't supposed to be like that at that point.
3: Uh, yeah, it certainly seems like the kind of thing that would be, um, uh, you'd want to be, you'd want to be more cautious than not. So I think that line of thinking makes sense. Like if we don't know, well, we, we might as well invest more into preventing the Mm -hmm. negative externality than, than the other way around. I think what I do, the challenge and political like tripwire is, is slowing down cargo ships, the right way the right focus like i don't know if you heard of this but like international cargo ships are being required to slow their speed to preserve emissions and it's like is that how, do, how if we're ever going to make one collective political decision correctly like it really it needs to be this one and i i i, yeah. I think technologists that are like clearly and honestly non-politically biased articulating like this is the things we need to invest in and this is how because even throwing money at electric chargers and electric cars it's like maybe it does more harm than good you know maybe you're giving a huge tax incentive to wealthy people who could afford teslas and then you're meanwhile like Mm -hmm. increasing the taxes on those who are like just barely getting by and that creates more chaos in the world and they can't contribute to the solution there it's like I don't know. It's, it does seem like such an enormous problem. And uh, yeah. And to be honest, I think this is way yeah. beyond my level of competence. Uh, I, I think quite frankly,
1: yeah. I don't think anybody has enough. I don't think anybody can understand such a complicated system as a whole, right? right? There are too many moving parts mm. in getting this right. And I think, you know, the best bet that we have is to just keep trying stuff. Uh, mm. One thing we know for sure is if we don't do anything is going to be, a you know, not good. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so let's try something, anything, right. Uh, and maybe it's, you yeah. know, engineering climate or maybe it's reducing, uh, cargo shipping. I don't know. Most likely we should try all of these things at the same time.
3: Yeah. What, uh, Rand, what areas, uh, what books or people, podcasts or blogs have you have inspired you the most or, or ones that you still reread or pay attention to today? Uh,
1: Hard to tell. Um, You know, I mostly get my content by following people like on Twitter pretty much these days. That and Reddit. You know, these are my two sources of information. Mm -hmm. Reddit is amazing. I think this is where you get the truth. Uh, Anything you Google now is going to be SEO driven. So it's going to be basically marketing material. If you want to know what people really think and how things actually work, you have to look on Reddit. Uh, So I think that for me would be like the primary source of truth on the internet right now. Um, there is one book I read, which I think is really interesting. If you want to understand, you know, the whole um, mindset behind crypto, behind you know the internet and everything, it's a it's a book called The Temporary Autonomous Zone uh, by a guy called Hacking Bay. Uh, it was written in the eighties, but when you read it today, it's surprisingly modern in the sense that it talks about. It basically talks about how the pirate utopia created internet, right? And they predicted everything in that book. They predicted, you know, the dark net. They predicted crypto. They predicted DAOs. All of it is in that book. So, you know, if any, if anybody is interested in, you know, kind of, uh, uh, cypherpunk type of, uh, thinking and uh, mindsets, uh, then you should read that book. I think this is a very good one. It's very short. I think for 40 pages.
3: Yeah. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. I'll check it out. A- any particular subreddits that you're especially attracted to or interested in? Well,
1: obviously, I read the crypto subreddits. Uh and I'm also yeah. into, like a whole bunch of like health subreddits. Uh it's amazing. Like people just try stuff and post there, right? And so you can actually literally see mm-hmm. from experience what people are doing. Uh, uh super interesting. So yeah, so so I think you know it's uh Reddit is a complicated community to navigate but if you know how to do it right you'll
3: get invaluable information. Yeah. Awesome man. Um uh, well where are you on the internet? I know I have your your blog here uh hind um uh, Twitter name is the same. Yeah, I think randhindi.com where does that take you? I
1: don't even know. Uh
3: sorry. Dot su- dot .substack. Dot yeah, th-
1: yeah. .substack.com. Yeah, exactly. Uh, So, yeah, that's my blog. Uh, So it's mostly an investment blog, though, right? So I I post about, you know, deals I'm investing in and things like that. Uh, I'm not a very good poster, but I'm going to start posting once a month uh, soon. So it's going to be more and more content. Mm -hmm. Uh, Twitter, that's the easiest way to get in touch with me. Uh, My handle is at Rand Hindi. Um, So I guess, you know, reach me on Twitter. I'm always open to discussing things by direct message. and yeah,
3: I enjoy my newsletter. Sweet. Will do. Awesome, man. This was fun. Thanks so much. Awesome. Awesome. No, thank you for having it with the business rates. Thank you. See ya.
0: Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts tweet about it or text it to a friend we really appreciate all the support and growing that we can if you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us don't hesitate to reach out we would love to hear from you
2: Thank sure. you.